Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, let's just uh, start. Absolutely. Now, I almost said my catchphrase from the main yeah. episode. No. Um, do we have a... We haven't really... Uh, not to use this to plug the Patreon, but, you know, patreon.com slash Battleship Redemption. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of great content, uh, an, an extra episode every week. Um we haven't really like codified the patreon yet in what know? sense in terms of like how we do our intros oh no we do we how, have one now do we yeah we okay. did it we i experimented with i with it like because we recorded four i experimented with it on number three solidified it on number four okay so you feel confident okay yeah but we don't have a sign off but i'm working on it do we have music yet on the patreon i'm working on it okay all right i mean i'm not i have someone working on it oh but great I'm that's not. exciting yeah you got a guy i do uh all right so uh let's talk about the movies we watched don't tell me what to do uh <laughs> i was saying it as a suggestion <laughs> right i'll allow it <laughs> um uh don't tread on me Oh, I'm drawing a blank now on something. Okay. That made me laugh. Someone said there's something that I watched where someone said, don't tell me what to do. And I thought it was very funny Mm. in the context. And now I'm forgetting what it was. It is to me. It's a thing I say more than I probably should because it's okay. (laughs) I consider myself for a regular person. Pretty funny. All right. We know a lot of comedians, and compared to them, it's like, I can't uh-huh. hope to compete. Okay. But I do have my go-tos, and incidentally, my go-tos almost always make other people laugh. One of them is someone says something that's pretty, you know, encouraging, like, hey, you just take care of yourself, you know? Like, they say, like they're trying to be uplifting, to which I say, don't tell me what to do, <laughs> all right? They laugh, I laugh, and then the other one is uh, people will say, I say, like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And then they'll say whatever it is, and I'll and they'll say, like, oh, we're just talking about, you know, like marriage or something. I was like, oh, okay, pro or con. And that one makes people laugh. <laughs> uh, and so I keep saying it. So if people stop laughing, I'll stop saying it. But uh, those are my those are my go-tos. I'm a big fan of don't tell me what to do. Did I give you enough time to figure out what it was? Yeah, and I don't know why. I think... Um, it's not funny in the way okay. it's used. Okay. It's funny because it's something that you say okay. and that Natalie actually says um, uh, all the time as a, as a joke. And then Natalie and I rewatched the pilot of Deadwood the other day. Nice. Um, in which uh, um, after Trixie has uh, shot a, a John through yeah. the head with a Derringer she wasn't supposed to have. Right. She is called into Al's office and he's, and she says, you know, do what you got to do to me. And he says, don't tell me what to do. And I laughed in the moment because of <laughs> I'm so used to that being a punchline. And then in the moment, it's not funny because yeah. the next thing he does is throw her against the wall, pin her down on the ground and literally stand on her neck. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Oh, uh, but yeah, that uh, stuck in my head. Well, I'm glad uh, that I could ruin that for you, but it's not just mine. It's Natalie's. It's, yeah. Natalie says it too yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, Natalie also says, which, um, tell me if you know, I, I love this. Tell me if you know what the, the, this game, uh, if you know what this quote is, okay. um, quit your hollering. That does sound very familiar, but yeah. no, I can't think it, think of it. Um, cause the joke in the movie is the person that he's talking to was not hollering, was just asking okay. a normal question. It's at the beginning of no country for old men. When Josh Brolin first comes home oh, yeah, to yeah. Kelly McDonald, and she's just like, where were you? what's that or whatever, you know? And he goes, quit your holler. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the two of them together. Yeah, it's like, it's cute. so sweet. And it's just a very like, what is it? Like if you, if you keep on like that, I'll have to take you back and fuck you. And she's like big talk. <laughs> it's, uh, oh, it's delightful. Uh, okay. All right. So let's talk about movies. Uh, I watched a movie that's available on Netflix. I guess it is branded as a Netflix, uh, original, but, mm-hmm. um, I don't know how, it wasn't c- couldn't have been commissioned by Netflix because this movie was started shooting in the 1950s. Uh, it's a documentary called Cuba and the Cameraman. Okay, and it is directed by a um, documentarian and independent news like journalist and cameraman named John Alpert, who um, has been he was 
has been going to Cuba regularly every few years since the revolution. In fact, he was there during when Fidel Castro came into power. Mm. Um, and so it's a movie that came out in 2017. You literally, so you literally get over 50 years of Cuba, including characters that he meets that he goes and sees every time. And you see how, um, life in Cuba was at, uh, under Castro and also that it wasn't, um, I think about this with, uh, um, when I watched cold war that we, we sort of tend to think like, Oh, the, like the, the Soviet era was here to here. Right. And we th- think of it almost as like monolithic or like mm-hmm. it was trapped in amber and then it came out. But right. like there were obviously thing were changes and progressions. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that's really fascinating. Um, um, in Cuba and the cameraman and to see economically how things, people are very happy and things are very good at first and kind of continue more or less in that way for quite a while until the Soviet Union collapses and the Soviet Union was essentially sponsoring Cuba, right. giving them, I mean, they get like they get a millions of dollars a day mm-hmm. and suddenly the nineties are terrible in Cuba. And then you weirdly see it start to come back in another way with tourism and with the black market being something that's a little bit more like don't ask, don't tell as opposed right. to earlier when people, if people were selling things on the black market, it's a prison sentence. In fact, mm-hmm. there's one guy that he goes to visit his friend that he sees every time and, the, and his neighbor's like, Oh yeah, he's in prison for four years cause he was selling, uh, I don't know, something, mm-hmm. Um, but then like the next time he comes back, that guy is like, Oh yeah, here's where you can get all the black market, like vegetables and here's, you can get all the black market and like, no one will give their name, but it's obviously not something that's, uh, it's really, it's a very interesting, um, movie. And you know, you and I talk about, uh, how often movies are interesting in ways other than what was intended. Oh yeah. Cause one of the most fascinating things about this movie to me is that John Alpert is clearly a, like started off and remains a very like leftist, like idealist, you know, true believer. And he is clearly pro Castro at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And I don't think on the one hand, he doesn't shy away from seeing people get, uh, you know, for showing, uh, how bad things could be under Castro. Right. But I feel like he can't really, even as it goes, even through all the terrible stuff, I feel like this John Alpert guy can't really admit to himself. He can't really break himself of his fondness for Castro because there's yeah. also in the early days in the, in the first couple decades in the, in the sixties and seventies, um, he was like, the the only American reporter that was regularly allowed access to Castro. So he and Castro had a relationship, you know? And so even at the end, I feel like, like that should cause one to look inward uh-huh. yeah. when, when, when a communist regime that is as forceful as the, as Fidel Castro is saying like, no, this one's okay. It's like, <laughs> uh, maybe, but he doesn't yeah. see it that way. Cause he sees course, it as yeah. like this leftist victory. Right. Um, and it, it's, it's really, really fascinating. Um, I read, uh, cause I like to read reviews, um, after I see, you know, as I see a movie and, uh, uh, Glenn Kenny, who's a guy that I read, uh, sometimes is it New Yorker or New York times. I forget. Mm. Um, uh, he made the kind of argument that I'm inching toward making, which is that the movie is all the more fascinating for John Albert's political blind spots. to use sure. Glenn Kenny's, uh, uh, term there. Um, so yeah, I, I repeatedly found myself also the guy, <laughs> this is, this is maybe mean spirited, but, um, Natalie was like, what are you watching? Cause the guy, he's very serious stuff, but the guy has this kind of high pitched voice like this. And so, <laughs> so like the fact that he's like, here's what it's like in Cuba. <laughs> like, it, it, it was kind of difficult for me to take seriously sometimes. Um, <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that. And yeah. You're right. That's, that's the kind of thing where you're like, is there, is there a clown wander in there? Yeah. That's, but then oh, you man. see how he's very gregarious and you understand the thing that really makes the movie the most fascinating is the friendships that he made with yeah. various, various people in, in Cuba. And you understand how he, this is a guy who probably makes friends with everyone he meets right away. Cause he's yeah. a very outgoing, very positive guy. Um, 
And so that thing that at first like kept me from being like, I was like, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> when he was like in 1957, like, <laughs> I just couldn't. Um, but that ended up, it, it's a really fascinating documentary. I, I, it's hard. I, it's hard to say when something is like not good despite itself, because the things that he is trying to do, he does well, mm-hmm. but it's better. I think because yeah. of things that he didn't intend. And then, so then I feel hard. I feel weird judging like to what extent is it a successful movie, yeah. but it's, uh, if you're interested in, in Cuba and in Cuba under Castro, yeah. it's a really fascinating watch. Okay. And then, uh, next up, I watch a movie, which, um, this is, uh, quite coincidentally, um, the first of two movies this week that are in some way very much about religious faith, Christian faith in particular, mm-hmm. um, not, uh, not critical, okay. um, but also not celebratory, just yeah, about, no, about it. So this is a movie, uh, a German movie that, um, uh, from a couple of years ago called nothing bad can happen or five years old. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, uh, the movie is not very good. Unfortunately, it's uh, real uh, miserablest stuff. It's a very uncomfortable to watch, and it's very punishing. And I'm not sure that it has anything beyond the superficial to say about what it's showing. Hmm. But it is uh, a fictionalized adaptation of a true story that happened in Germany, in which this um, sort of uh, uh, homeless, like young Christian punk punk rocker was taken in by a family who then over the course of a summer essentially turned them, turned him into like a domestic slave and abused him and starved him and made him sleep outside and all this stuff. So it's based on something that really happened. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, but the characters that imagines him, um, is very devout and sees his, service to this family as a kind of calling. And so even when right. he's given ways out, cause the daughter like mm-hmm. is kind of on his side. Like there's a part where, um, he, uh, they haven't fed him for days and he goes to the trash and finds like a chicken breast. Right. But then it's too rotten to eat. But when they find that he stole to them, they say they, he stole food from us. Even though he took it out of the trash, they force him to eat it all anyway. And then he gets food poisoning and goes to the hospital. And he's like, essentially free that the family is like dropping at the door. They're like, we don't want anything to do with this. Hmm. He, you know, they're like, maybe this will, they, they, he, if he hadn't gone back, he would have been free. But as soon as he's well enough to walk, he goes back to them. Uh, and the question is, is it, is it a sort of Stockholm syndrome or is he doing this out of what he feels is his calling or what God wants him to do or is a Christian thing to do? Probably the former that then becomes sort of justified by the latter, I would say. Um, it's not at all an uncommon thing that, that uh, Christians will find themselves in a very terrible situation which they are exploited by people uh-huh. uh, or take advantage of whatever you want to say. And they feel like... It happens the other way, too, in the Catholic Church, at least. Well, yeah, I guess so. Sorry, I'm talking... Look, Protestants, we don't do that kind of thing. Sure, yeah. You guys, there's never been a scandal. Squeaky queen. Yeah. Um, but Jim Baker, love him. Love the guy. I don't remember. I know who that is, but I don't remember. It was like he had an affair yeah, or something, right? Affair. Okay, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's not as bad. <laughs> Having an affair is not, not as, as bad, bad. As, yeah, as rape, yes. Um, but, uh but yeah, the, it's it's not at all uncommon to to feel like, well, you know, God put me in this situation for a reason, so I guess I should just stay here. Incidentally, there is no biblical precedent for that. Huh. Uh, I mean, if th- if that were the case, then why would the Jews ever want to leave Egypt? Why would Joseph ever want to get out of his uh, slavery? Like it's the idea of recognizing but, when you're in an unjust situation. Yeah. Uh, even if it's unjust towards you trying to get out of that so that you might do better things as a person. Uh, I think that there's no, there's nothing at all wrong with yeah, that. I think I mean, I it's, can, it's an extreme interpretation of turning, turning, turning yeah. the other cheek, which yeah. turning the other cheek doesn't mean yeah. be a, 
a masochist, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. It just means don't, uh, don't fight back, but it's okay to extricate yourself from the situation. Yeah. And that's the other thing is, is by continuing, like turning the other cheek that, it, that also, that is something akin to like when someone says, in fact, I think it's, it's, I forget if it's the verse before or after, but it says when you do this, it is as though you are heaping flaming coals on the head of your enemy. It's like, it is saying that this is oh. a sort of strategy, uh, to shame the other person. Yeah. As, as opposed to this idea uh-huh. of enabling them, uh, constantly. And so I hope I remember you said that because that'll come, that'll come up in the second movie that has to do with, uh, religious faith, oh, okay. uh, at the end of the podcast. What did okay. you watch this week? Uh, I watched a film that you have seen. In fact, you've seen all of the films that I, that I am going to be talking about. Um, okay. uh, Hans Peter Mullen's cold pursuit. Oh, okay. Which uh, I was not interested in at all because of the way it was marketed, uh, with the exception of its poster. Its poster is very tongue-in-cheek, but the trailer makes it look very standard, uh, standard Liam Neeson kind of thing. And then you mentioned that it's a little bit off, but purposely so. And Yeah, it's very, um, what's what I'm looking for? I guess guess postmodern in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... The way that I would describe it is Ravenousonian, um, because it reminded me of Ravenous. Uh, like when I think of Ravenous as like a horror movie, it's like it still is that, uh-huh. and it does everything that a, that a horror movie, that a more straightforward movie doing this material would do, while also doing us all this all this other stuff on the side. Okay, um, and even though, uh, even though. I went in knowing the way you were talking about it is kind of its own little commentary on the, um, on the subgenre of Liam Neeson revenge vigilante <laughs> movies. Um, I went in knowing that, but it doesn't declare itself as that for easily 15 minutes. And at that, and by hmm. then I kind of forgot, I got lulled into a, a, a somber Liam Neeson, you know, uh, dead kid movie and then comes the uh the suicide attempt i won't say by what character where this poor this person i mean this is dark humor uh-huh. uh puts a rifle uh in his mouth and then someone gets his attention and he looks over and starts talking and his lip is like stuck to the <laughs> rifle barrel and it's like that is funny uh-huh. and so so very dark yeah. and the film just continues like that and just becomes more and more the type of humor that we're dealing with is absurd it is genuinely absurd um but i found it invigorating and i really really liked it and the the biggest laugh i've had this year is someone asking to go back to the phrase you were using um something like have you ever heard of Stockholm syndrome? Do you know the, the, the scene? I'm trying to remember. Okay. Well, it's uh, a character has kidnapped a young boy, uh, and then is being very fatherly towards uh-huh. that young boy. And then at one point he's like reading him, not even a story, reading him a, a manual. Right. And, uh, and then the kid like snuggles up to him and it's a, a really nice moment at which point the kid then says, have you heard of Stockholm syndrome? <laughs> that's what the kid and says. It. Yeah. And it's, Oh, it's so hilarious. I that's, couldn't stop laughing in the theater. Yeah. And it's just, but the thing that made me laugh is, uh, every time William Forsyth showed up, he's, oh, he's, he's great. This is, I mean, I always liked yeah. him. I feel like I haven't seen him in that much recently. Yeah. It's been a while. Um, he was, he, he was on boardwalk empire, right? Which I didn't very watch. Shortly and he's marvelous and he's marvelous okay. in everything. And that's the thing is he's not winking at you either. Like he's, this film could, his, uh, yes, admittedly his, his, his what, relationship with his wife and the and way he dresses his wardrobe is doing a lot of the work. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's the brilliance of it is that nobody is really winking at you. Everybody's just going straight forward and uh and i really appreciate it i it's it's not in theaters much longer but uh listeners i would recommend i would recommend you see it oh apparently william forsyth played j edgar hoover on the man on the high castle oh all right interesting i've been meaning to watch that show it sounds like such a delightful high concept show and the fact that was the word and the fact well it's delightful like in a in the way it's like audacious and crazy 
and the fact that apparently J. Edgar Hoover is still in it. Uh, that's yeah. that's interesting to me. Oh, right. And he was also on The Mob Doctor, which I never watched, but is mostly basically notorious for being a terrible show. Right. Uh, w- you and I were on the Paul Goebel show talking about like new mo- new shows. Mm-hmm. And so I watched episode one of Mob Doctor and we just and Goebel just couldn't get enough of just saying the title. <laughs> he just loves saying Mob Doctor, yeah. which admittedly I would, too. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really bad. But he was very good on it, of course. Yeah. And I'm still scrolling to see what was the last thing I saw William Forsyth in. And. Uh, wow, I'm almost into the 90s now. Hmm. Jesus. Is it going to be, it is going to be Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo was the most recent thing that I saw him in before wow. this. Anyway. I guess, I guess he pivoted to, to TV, which is not at all a, a bad thing. No, um, yeah. Because everyone else is doing it. Because so he, he? he did great work on Boardwalk Empire. He was, it was a shame he wasn't on the show longer, but uh, he definitely made an impact. All right. So uh, moving on to another uh, current movie, movie that comes out, um, at least in uh, select cities this weekend. And that's, uh, I don't know how to say the director's name. Gia Zenkei's Ash is purest white, Mm -hmm. which, uh, now Tyler, you know, listeners know my weird, sorry, my, my weird list making end of year rules. And so every, every year there are movies that don't get released in the U S or maybe even anywhere outside of festivals until one year, but I won't Mm -hmm. consider them. Um, Ashes Purest White would definitely be a contender for the top 10 uh, already. Um, okay. It's, uh, uh, I've, I liked this director. Um, I think I think his last film was A Touch of Sin, but there might have been one after that. I can't remember. Uh, but I remember the first film of his that I saw back when we lived in Chicago was Unknown Pleasures. Um, and uh, this might be my favorite of his films so far. It's the story of a... Uh, basically a it takes place over the course of basically the entire 21st century it starts in 2001 ends in 2018 and it's uh so in 2001 it's a uh gangster's girlfriend is the is the main character and then to save her boyfriend from a potentially fatal beating that he's receiving she pulls out a gun and fires it a couple times in the air to scare people off um owning an illegal firearm and firing it off and also not being too loyal to admit to the cops that she got it from her boyfriend. Mm. Uh, she has been going to prison for five years. Oh my. Um, uh, which I don't know. I, I don't know what the prison sentence would be in the States for not shooting anyone, but shooting, having an unregistered firearm, right. shooting it twice in public. Uh, I feel, I, I like, feel like he wouldn't do five years. For I don't think five years, but I don't think it'd be a slap on the wrist either. Yeah. I could see it being like two or three years, maybe. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, so then five years goes by. He never visits her once. We cut. We, there's almost no prison se- sequence at all. We just jump to her getting out of prison. And then most of the middle act is her trying to track him down again mm-hmm. to be like, hey, where are we? What are we? You know, what's uh, what's going on? But um uh, the plot isn't that important. This character played by, uh, Zhao Tao is her name. She's, uh, been the female lead in pretty much every one of, uh, Gia, Gia's movies. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a character piece. It's also like most of his movies. It's clearly about China very much. This is the second time I'll bring up cold war much the second way the cold war used the story of two lovers to show you, uh, Poland, um, and the Soviet union in general changing over, uh, about 15 years. This is a movie that is about China over these 15 years. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, you see sort of, um, the dwindling of this organized crime lifestyle. You see the rise of, um, technology there's a almost a it almost becomes kind of a joke every time you jump a few years that she has a different cell phone Hmm. because which is that's what it would be oh absolutely but like almost every time there's a new jump you see a cell phone within the first scene (laughs) you know Uh, so you can kind of say like uh oh okay so it's been about five years now um you also see the relocation of uh populace uh, of, of parts of the populace because of the building of the three gorges dam, which flooded, uh, they removed, they, uh, 
what sort are you looking for? Uh, when you evacuated a, mm-hmm. a, a, a town and, and flooded it to uh, build a Three Gorges Dam, there's all sorts of other uh, other things. Um, and uh, she's in a particularly unique position being just out of prison. While she was in prison, her only living relative, her father, died. She doesn't know if she's got a life with this guy, Ben. Right. Uh, she's in a place that you could see as uh, really devastating that she's destitute and hopeless, but you could also see it um, as maybe the way that certain certain restrictions maybe have, have changed uh, or fallen in China. It's gotten a little bit more, you know, much like Cuba, a little bit more open mm-hmm. to business and stuff like that. Uh, you could see it as her standing on the precipice of a lot of opportunity. She can do literally whatever she wants within her means, Mm -hmm. uh, with her life. Um, and the movie, which is about two hours and 15 minutes long, um, and, and almost feel has this epic feel, uh, it, 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 it's a, a perfect mixture of very mournful and very hopeful at the same time. It's very much a bittersweet, uh, a movie that um, I think the the movie isn't uh, it isn't shy or coy about what the title means. Ashes purest white. Mm-hmm. That she talks about how clean volcano ash is early on because she and her boyfriend are looking at a volcano, and um, she says something like the you know the things that burn the brightest or burn burn the quickest are the purest. Hmm. And so the movie kind of sets up the first act pre-prison as she and this guy burning very bright. And then the question is, well, she's done burning maybe, or that part of her burning is over, but is she pure? Is there, what happens when you burn out and, but you still are walking around? Um, uh, yeah, gorgeous movie. There's some stuff that I'm not, uh, getting into uh because i want i want to leave it as a uh you know a surprise for for people to, to check it out since the movie's just opening this weekend uh it also utilizes um another way it sort of tracks time is that the uh the elements itself it starts on like dv camera which is what he shot unknown pleasures on in 2002 and then like uh i think it gets to 35 millimeter and then it's like pure you know, HD and there's mm. drone footage like the, the technology changes as it would have changed at the different parts of, of the story. Interesting. Uh, really, really beautiful movie. Really worth seeing. Uh, check it out when it comes to your town. What did you watch? All right. I saw last night, I saw Stephen Merchant's fighting with my family. Oh yay! Which I really adored. Um, Despite it, it often falling into some screenwriting cliches that tend to bother me, um, which is, you know, someone quotes, somebody says something at the beginning of the script and then they say it again at the end. It's like, you know, a year has passed, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like it's not two hours for the characters. Right. Um, Oh yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, I I can remember that. And, and so uh, stuff like that and like, a character is 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 speaking generally, but also very specifically, and then reveals, ah, "I'm talking about me," you know, uh, stuff like that. But but he, I think he does a good job. I think scene. he does a very. That's yeah. that's the problem. That not the problem. That's that's. There's nothing necessarily wrong with cliches. There's nothing wrong with a familiar structure uh, if you do it, if you tackle it with sincerity and with a certain degree of originality. And I think with the characters and with the specifics of the situation, I think you have your originality. Yeah. Um, you've got um, this young woman. She's very, she's young, very young. She's like 18. Mm-hmm. Um, from the UK and her, she's from a wrestling family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she and her brother <clears throat> kind of, he's a couple years older, but they, they came up together and then they both are, are tapped to audition for the WWE essentially. And, uh, she gets picked and he does not. And I, I like what they do with both stories. I like that he is yeah. not forgotten because this it's, 
it is a huge deal to he, not, it, there's a really powerful moment where, and we've seen it before. We saw it in like Friday night lights where he's like, I can't do anything else. Yeah. And that is a, yeah. that is a sad realization. Cause the members of the family are all other than him are all names that I knew. Obviously I know Nick Frost and Lena Headey. Yeah, I knew right. Florence Pugh cause she was just in outlaw King. Right. And then she was in lady Macbeth, which I didn't see, but she was supposed to be great in that. He, this, the brother is the only one I wasn't aware of and was really impressed by him. He's great. And I, I, he was uh, he was in Dunkirk. Uh, so Tom Hardy is one pilot, and okay. he's the other pilot. Oh, okay. Um, not necessarily a, a, a notable role, but not not necessarily yeah. a big role. But um, yeah, I thought he did did a great job because both in the in the screenwriting and the performance, you do that wrong, and that character seems petulant. Mm-hmm. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, but I sympathize with him tremendously, and I sympathize with her. And what I like is that is that she is succeeding and yet struggling tremendously. And because of his own struggle, he's not seeing that. And I also love that the film mostly refuses to judge its characters. Like she is part of, uh, you know, of the, the other, uh, potential wrestlers, like in the, in the female division, whatever the diva division, whatever you want to call it. Um, they are former dancers, cheerleaders, that's models. Yeah. She's uh, the one who came up from wrestling. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't really know wrestling that well. And they're all more attractive than she is like conve- convention, conventionally. I mean, it, they're all blonde and tanned yeah. and all that kind of thing. And she's got like this dark black hair and she's nose super rings pale and, and nose ring. Yeah. So yeah. So like she stands yeah. out, they all kind I of, think she's pretty hot. I think she's very attractive, but like, <laughs> but the point is that like they fit a certain, I, you know, ideal in certain people. And what I like is that the film sees them the way she does. And then they reveal themselves as like, we aren't simply the way you look at us either, yeah, yeah. you know? And, and so that's, that's what I like is that the film, even when it is hewing to the, the formula, it finds new ways to do it and ways that I thought were in inspiring, but in a way that is earned as is the case with any other film like this, it could have been, uh, it could have been calculating and manipulative and cynical and just kind of tr- treated the inspiration as a foregone conclusion. Uh, but it doesn't do that here. Uh, everybody's great. I love both of the parents. Uh, I laughed frequently that's what i was going to say it's also probably thanks to stephen merchant in large part it is consistently very funny yeah. I, I, in fact i it's a movie that I, it's been weeks since i saw it and i keep thinking about a couple of the well i like the conversation between florence Pugh and her brother when she's like that time when your penis fell out and everyone was laughing at it and he goes yeah. they weren't laughing at it they were yeah. laughing at the situation, at the situation. but yeah. no, the the scene that i keep thinking about is when they meet because he's dating someone who's a little bit more uh gen, gen genteel i yes. guess and yeah. Stephen merchant plays the dad and so first he's like her dad's a bit posh so watch the effing and jeffing and he goes what what is, what is he the duke of shitting Kent. Um, But then the funniest part is at that dinner when they are trying to watch their language. Mm hmm. And Nick Frost is talking about having broken his nose multiple times and it being crooked. And Lena Headey goes, you should see his cock. And then she goes, I'm sorry, penis. Yeah. You should see his penis. And at one point <laughs> I forget what they, I forget penis jokes. I'm realizing, uh, in the yeah, it's, and <laughs> there comes a moment when, uh, I forget what they, I forget what the word they say. It's essentially, it's something like sack or something like uh-huh. that. And he goes, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, ball bag. And that's the thing. I don't usually laugh at that type of humor, but, yeah. if you d- but the idea of somebody trying to say the right thing and actually just <laughs> completely, uh, complete lateral move, uh, is well, it's same, and yeah, same with the Lena Hetty thing, like yeah. correcting the word, but not realizing the whole yeah. sentiment is vulgar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. And I, I like that. That's the other thing is that, you know, when you've got Nick Frost as this kind of well-meaning but oafish guy, and then you've got uh, Lena uh, Hetty, right? Uh-huh. Okay, I keep wanting to say Headley, but no, I'm thinking of <laughs> Blazing Saddles. Um, but uh, <laughs> or Glenn Headley, rest in peace. Yeah, it's uh, it would have it could have been easy to make him 
just the the bullheaded the the pig-headed bullish kind of guy and she's like the understanding mom but no both parents the, the, it is strongly implied that both parents sort of forced maybe forced their kids into this mm-hmm. it wasn't just him um and and i love those moments yeah. of realization uh and it's it's a film that just really it's, worked for me and it's a movie that everyone that i know who has seen it loves it yeah and no one seems to be going to see it for some reason it, it didn't do very well i guess but uh yeah i don't know i didn't review it so i guess i didn't do my part um all right so uh next up for me is a movie that is out this weekend that i'm i know i'm gonna be and i already know that i'm in the minority for liking but it is just up my alley and that is uh five feet apart the new oh okay teen like romance weepy yeah teen love and death melodrama oh man that i could live on it that is my stuff and this movie does it and especially so if you don't know the the story uh um it's about um a young woman who has cystic fibrosis and spends long times uh long hospital stays um so much that she has other friends on the floor uh, Mm -hmm. who have cystic fibrosis she's friends with the nurse and there's a new guy uh with cf as they call it in the movie um played by cole sprouse and he's kind of the you know the angry pessimistic loner type to her like bubbly positive ocd type Mm -hmm. um and so obviously there's no way they're going to get along right yeah i mean i can't conceive of it no um and then so it's a it's a love and disease movie and i can't say i I know uh, there are things to think about that maybe in 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 the modern day when we talk about movies and we talk about things like representation people who are disabled or suffering from diseases right. uh, often get le- left out of that i can't speak to how the movie treats the cystic fibrosis community yeah. i know that it the movie is made in con- in concert with a, one of the major um uh charities um for cf research um so i hope it's trying to be respectful i can't speak to that i don't want to be if the movie is not good at that i don't want to be crass for liking it so much but uh just the movie is just such a melodrama such a grand melodrama Mm -hmm. and the thing that i'm putting off saying because the thing that i want to get to is that um okay it's been five years since i saw the young Kislowski at LA film fest. It is time for Haley Lou, Haley Lou Richardson to be the star that she deserves to be. Mm-hmm. She is, I think the greatest unsung talent in young American actors right now. She's a person that I could watch in absolutely anything. And the fact that she uh, hasn't had, I mean, this is the bigger, biggest thing I think that she's done. I mean, she's had smaller roles, uh, in, in some bigger, she was in operation finale last year. She was in split, Yeah, but these aren't major roles. This is probably the the biggest, most mainstream thing she's done. Right. She's had big roles. She was, I love her in Columbus. Columbus. I think she's marvelous in that support the girls. Yeah. And then, um, the edge of 17 where she was the, uh, second fiddle to the other Haley. Who's also, I love, I love Haley Steinfeld too, but, um, I feel like I've been on the Haley Lou Richardson train. I apparently can't say her name without stumbling uh, for maybe five that's, years maybe now. That's the problem. Uh, you think too many people she, just got to drop that Lou? Uh, no, I think the Lou is. Uh, that's where. That's maybe like, she should drop Haley and just be Lou Richardson. No, yeah. that doesn't. <laughs> it sounds like right. a yeah. like a jazz man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, Lou Richardson. Uh, no, and and the extent to which the movie works, I think part of it has to do with like not bullshit in the audience like knowing not pretending not to be what it is right uh and also not drawing out like i said the the whole thing about like will they get together it doesn't draw that out they fall for each other pretty quickly on pretty early on because i think the movie knows that we know they're going to uh and 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 doesn't doesn't waste its time but i but i think the movie works in large part because uh hayley lou richardson uh, is a shining talent that uh, uh, I hope to, we I hope we see more and more of. Although I, but then I I hope that I you know when there's an actor that I that that I like um, that ends up being in a Marvel or Star Wars or something like that, I always mm. feel like it. Uh, we lose something of them, you know, like I still love Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac is still very, um, 
uh, a very charismatic actor, but how long is he going to be this leading man guy before we get to see more complex, we get to see him as like the villain in ex machina or a more complex guy, like a most violent You know, I, I feel yeah. like, and I may, and maybe this is going to happen with Brie Larson too. Maybe we're going to lose her for a few years mm. to the machine. And so I, on the one hand, I want Lou Haley Richardson to get all the accolades that she deserves, but on the other hand, I don't want her to become another, uh, part of the Disney stable. You know, yeah, ideally somebody does that. And it means that, other projects get made because of their presence in it. Ideally. And I think long term that could happen yeah. with uh with certain people, but it does seem like they get kinda swallowed up uh and then they're gone for a little bit. Yeah, I mean I yeah, you mentioned Oscar Isaac. I think that's perfect. Like I mean, I love him in Inside Lewin Davis. I do think he's great in Ex Machina and then what was the other one that you mentioned? Uh, a most violent year, a most violent year, yeah, yeah. which I which I adored. Uh, but now he's got, he's got Triple Frontier in theaters now, which is a JC Chandler, JC Chandler, right? Like, yeah. so it's like I wasn't interested until I saw that, and I was like, oh, yeah. all right, well, okay. I, that's the most violent year. But apparently, the film is not that great. Yeah. Uh, but like, yeah, Star Wars, and then even Operation Finale, it's fine. But, oh, yeah, but, but his character is pretty bland, anodyne, yeah, and yeah, and so that's the problem is that like once you get us to a certain level. After a while, and I'm not sure if I blame the actors or their representation, that it's like they need to keep you at that level, which means, yeah, maybe you can do a little one-off small project here and there, but even those need to have a certain type of appeal. Um, and so, yeah, it's so maybe it's, it's arguable whether yeah. like he will ever get to where he was before, which yeah. is interesting because in the eyes of most people, it's like, Oh, he's way higher than he was before. But artistically, I think he's definitely lost a step, not necessarily as far as his his ability, but the opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I I don't know, maybe, um, what we need, you know, when you get, uh, actors like, I, when, what really gets an actor out of this sort of thing is finding a good actor director combo, you know, like Leo and Scorsese, you know? Um, and so maybe if, um, I forget her name who directed Edge of 17 or I forget the name of the guy who directed Columbus or Andrew Bajowski who directed mm. support the girls. Maybe if their stars rise and Hilly Richardson stars rise together, they could right. be a, a, a big team. But, um, all right. What did you watch? I, this is a rewatch. I haven't seen the film in quite a while. I watched it in my world cinema class. Uh, and that is Jean-Luc Godard's breathless, uh, which I assigned because I, th- in my, in my opinion, it is the, like the purest example of French new wave. Okay. Uh, as far as, uh, dealing with familiar genres, specifically American genres, but with a very specific style that actually owes a lot more to Italian neorealism, but a lot cooler than both uh, at the same <laughs> time. Um, I, I've only seen three Godard films. There might be a fourth that I'm not thinking of, but I've only seen three uh, have not really enjoyed any of them. Uh, I think admittedly they're all, I know that he has evolved as a filmmaker. These are films that from the sixties. Um, well, which ones have you seen besides breathless? So I saw band of outsiders. Oh, I love and it. then one, the name of which I have already forgotten. Unfortunately, is it weekend? No. Is it a woman is a woman? That might be it. Um, it's so frustrating. It's cause he's made so many. I think it's, I think, oh yeah, that's the one. Okay. Or at least I think so. Yeah. He's made so many. I'm like, ah, why am I even bother looking this up? I guess I'll just get a cramp in my finger as I like scroll all the way down. Um, I'm pretty sure that's, that's the one, but, uh, but yeah. And I've heard that I would really like contempt. Oh no, that's not, I didn't see it. No, I saw Viva Savi. Um, that was oh, it. Not, which I have not seen. Um, and yeah, it's I he he is a prime example of a filmmaker whose work I absolutely respect and I understand why it is good and I'm glad that it exists. I have a hard time watching it. Um and so much of it has to do with the fact that like I hate these characters and I hate being forced to spend time with them. And what's more is I remember one of your big complaints about Nashville is the Keith Carradine character and the fact that like I mean, he's definitely an asshole, but you 
you feel like Altman is kind of on his side. Yeah. I absolutely feel that Godard is on these characters side. Like that's probably true. I yeah. think he sees their inherent self-centeredness as something to aspire to, uh, something vaguely noble. Um, and, and incidentally, I'm, I, you know, not that you necessarily have to pick one of the one over the other, but, um, I, I definitely like, in, as far as French New Wave, I definitely prefer Truffaut. I love the 400 Blows. But similarly, I can't stand Jules and Jim because it is once again about three people that are very self-centered. And it's and that's the thing. I, I've, I've seen movies about self-centered people, but uh, I think there's just something about the, the light as a feather style to French New Wave that keeps me from really embracing it. Um, and so Breathless, I absolutely respect it and i and and there's no there's no way i was going to show anything else for french new wave because because i do think it is it is iconic in many ways but uh but yeah my i know that it's this is one of those things where like yeah i know as a film person i'm supposed to love it yeah and i'm not going to say it's a bad movie i'm just going to say that for me it just doesn't connect Hmm. i'm sure i have something like that but i'm uh drawing a blank on it right I mean, now. And you know what? Similarly, for years, I felt that way about 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that is undeniably fascinating. Oh, wow. yeah. But as I've gotten older, I now have a deep, not merely respect for it, but now I actually do really like it. And yeah. it like really resonates with me. Upon which I was interested to see how I would uh, respond to watching Breathless uh, again. And sure enough, uh, I didn't, uh, didn't love it. Uh, okay. Um, finally, for me... Um, because I really, um, I really liked, um, burning, uh, last year. Right. And I'd only ever seen one Lee Chang Dong film before, which is Oasis, which is uh, amazing. So I decided to watch another one, uh, which was the, I guess the follow up to Oasis, which is called uh, 2007's secret sunshine. And, um, I found myself thinking was burning cause burning's great, but, I wonder if burning was Lee Chang Dong sort of breakthrough film, if you will, because it has, at least in America, because it has an actor in it who was on the walking dead. Do you know what I mean? Undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, burning's great. I forget. Did you see burning? I didn't. I I wanted to. And, and uh, I think it's, it's not merely, Oh, this actor's in it, but it, this actor's in it playing a different type of character than the one people are used to. Right. I think yeah. there was a certain novelty to it. That people yeah. I, I never watched the walking dead, but from what I, from what little I have read of the early walking dead comics, I remember yeah. what, uh, uh, what's that character's name? Glenn. Glenn. I remember what Glenn was like. And yeah, he's definitely not like the guy yeah. burning. But anyway, I say that because burning's great. Secret sunshine is a masterpiece. Okay. It's amazing. And I don't, I, I could spend, it's uh, a number of the reviews that I read, like like I said earlier, I like to go read reviews after I watch a movie, especially if I like a movie. A number of the reviews that I read described the movie as novelistic. And, um, uh, I think what that means is that it's not, there's no simple log line I could use to sum up what happens in the movie. It's mm-hmm. two and a half hours long, much like burning is. Um, and it, uh, uh a lot of different things happen. It, uh, a, a, a young woman, a widow, um, with a young son moves. She leaves Seoul and moves to a town called Miryang, I think, which is the town that her husband, her late husband grew up in. So mm-hmm. she moves there to start over, get away from all the bad memories or whatever, go to a place that meant a lot to her husband and to start, she's a piano teacher to start a piano school. Um, she has some trouble making friends at first. She's finally making friends when, uh, and this is at this point, about 45, 50 minutes into the movie, her son is kidnapped and murdered. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. And then that's not even like, I even told you like, there's a, also a whole storyline about the local mechanic who's, uh, in love with, who's like falls in love with her and like follows her everywhere played by, uh, and I forget his name, but the, the main guy from the host, the, the, oh, okay. the, the guy who played, he was like the loser, uh, uncle yeah. in the host. Um, here he's also kind of, I've seen this guy play, uh, I forget his name. He's a really good actor. He's in a lot of stuff. Um, uh, and, and like, like I said, there's a bunch of other stuff that, that happens, but, um, including 
one thing that happens is her, uh, as I hinted at earlier in the movie, uh, finding solace in Christ. When <laughs> she, one of the first people she meets when she moves to town, the, uh, across the street from her piano where her piano, like, uh, I don't know, studio or whatever is, is a pharmacy and the pharmacist, it's a couple that run it and they're, um, uh, very devout and they, you know, try to talk to her about, about Jesus and she sort of dismisses it, uh, at first. And then in the wake of this horrible tragedy, she sort of, uh, and so a big part of the movie is her, um, uh, uh, embracing the Christianity. Um, and there was something you said earlier about the idea of turning the turning of the cheek being almost like a fuck you. Yeah. And there's a part where she starts to adopt this, this, uh, attitude of like radical forgiveness mm-hmm. until, and the movie doesn't spell this out, but when her ability to forgive people doesn't, shame them in the way that she maybe expects she has a very different reaction than you, uh, than you would expect. And really, I think it's a really interesting, it's a really great performance. And I forgot, hold on. I (laughs) forgot the actress's name. Um, because when, you know, when you speak one language in a movie, you know, actors come from another country with the names are difficult to keep straight. I try not to, uh, yeah. her, her name's, uh, John Duyon. And, um, uh, so this is, she's, I feel like if this were a more mainstream movie, a Hollywood movie, there would be too much temptation to make her sympathetic because of how terrible the thing is that happens right. to her. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie never forget when she comes to town from Seoul, she's got a little bit of a snobbery about her, about this small town Mm -hmm. and that sense of self importance and arrogance doesn't go away just because her son was murdered. And so, uh, it's a really a fascinating character study about a person who has some pretty major flaws. As it turns out, uh, bad things happen to bad people as well. (laughs) But I wouldn't go so far as to to call her a a bad person, but she has this flaw. And I think one of the most fascinating things about the movie is that, um, that flaw doesn't go away just because something terrible happens to her. She's still kind of a jerk. And the way that her life goes, changes the way that her being a jerk manifests. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's still about a character who is, and I think uh, like the best movies about complex characters like this, I think that Lee Chang Dong does have a lot of affection for this character and especially, and I think John Dion who plays her also has a lot of affection for the character. I think she's a good person. The movie is just about a person with a, a pretty serious flaw, which is something we all have pretty serious that's, flaws. That's, that's, I'm quick to anger. I don't know if you know that I've picked up on it from time to uh, time. I didn't tell you the other day. I'll mention this. So I listen to tweaked audio earbuds mm-hmm. at work mm-hmm. all day long for a while walking around. I still will use the Apple ones because I like, I know tweaked audio aren't a sponsor of the movie journal. So I can say, I do like the controls on the cord of the Apple ones sure. that I can pause and change the volume. Sure. It's very good when I'm out walking. If I'm walking and I'm walking down the street and suddenly very busy with traffic, I can turn it up. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. If I'm walking my dog and someone wants to stop to tell me how cute my dog is, I can hit pause on the podcast. Right. Uh, very or easily you can turn it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was walking around one morning. I just, just gotten to work was like, putting my stuff down. I come from the bus and that, um, that thing in particular, I've been doing this off and on for a few weeks where that part was malfunctioning in such a way that songs on Spotify would just, I just move my leg the wrong way and it would skip to the next song. Hmm. And it was, I started the same song over like three times and I was like walking up to my desk. I just like got my coffee, was walking up to my desk. Still, yes, I still listen to my earbuds uh, at work. It's an open office plan. There's, you have to be able to get away from people with some anyway. <laughs> um, and so like the third time in a row, it skipped this song like a minute in, I ripped the headphones out of the phone and out of my ear and whipped them over the back of my chair about three, uh, three times, which is why you'll hear me say, 
in the upcoming main episode when I do the tweaked audio <laughs> ads that I just bought a new pair of tweaked audio earbuds because I full on broke my stupid fucking Apple ones. <laughs> anyway, sounds like they're pretty flimsy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th- why my- do you think you have this uh, anger issue? Why do you uh, think that was your your go to with these earbuds? Why? I mean. We, I was in therapy for three years. We barely scratched the surface of why well, I haven't in therapy with me. No, but I, I, there's, uh, uh, probably a, a lot of reasons that I, um, was sad and insecure and anxious a lot as a kid. And to some extent, still as an mm-hmm. adult and anger is, uh, empowering to people who don't feel like not that I had a bad childhood, but I did. I do feel like right. I was a weird kid. I was my parents' first kid. They're mm. my parents are great people, but they weren't weirdos. And I think <laughs> I felt I felt misunderstood by them a lot of the time. And I felt uh, uh, I had difficulty knowing how to be myself. Yeah, and. Um, uh, so certain things like I have some, I'm not thankfully, you know, knock on wood. I'm not, I don't have OCD, but I have Mm -hmm. some, uh, compulsive behavior that require that, that leads me to be, uh, very rigid and organized in certain actions and in certain ways of thinking. So that's the control. Mm -hmm. And then there's the anger thing, which makes me feel empowered usually for about, depending on anywhere from 15 seconds to 15 minutes, I'll feel empowered. And then I'll usually feel embarrassed. Right. Uh, yeah. My well, the one coworker, luckily it was early enough. It was the only one coworker saw me do that. And she just looked at me and I looked at her and I said, my headphones aren't working. <laughs> 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 We're friends. She thought it was funny. That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, I mean, it's, I definitely think, I mean, people have said, I'm not saying this is you, but there are people who have said that like <clears throat> that, we tend to hold on to anger because it feels really good. Not merely as an outlet, but like when a person is angry, whether they are, whether it's true or not, they feel righteous in that moment. They feel like you're filled with ambition and focus. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a feeling of purpose purpose. Yes. And usually the purpose is mixed with this concept of like, justice. Yeah. Like Like, self-righteousness. Yeah. yeah, Like I'm going to make this, like this person is going to know that they are wrong. Yeah. And I am the deliverer of justice to these fucking headphones, you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah, Yeah, I don't, and I don't don't feel bad about taking it on headphones. Um, and I've never, my, uh, I, you know, when, uh, when I express my anger to a person, it's usually verbal. Mm -hmm. Um, that I do tend to feel bad about because that self-righteousness, when the anger goes away, I also realize, oh, there's about five other ways of looking at this in which I might have been the bad guy here. And maybe I wasn't right to right. that self-righteousness was completely unfounded. Yeah. How did we get out of this? Cause I was asking, I was curious. You said uh, you were talking about like people having flaws yeah. and that's, this is something that's been on my mind. I know that we, the last thing we need to do is spend more time on this kind of thing. But uh, I mentioned this in my um, Captain Marvel review. So the larger conversation that has been happening uh, in in the wake, uh, you know, in in the in view of like third wave feminism and the way that it impacts big blockbusters um, from a representation standpoint, um, is you get characters like Ray in Star Wars, and then you get characters like Captain Marvel. And a lot of people have been saying, and I, I mentioned this a little bit, a lot of people have been saying like, well, just because they are strong doesn't mean they're strong characters. Like a I strong very character. very strongly with that. Yeah. Oh, I, I do too. Uh, like, I mean, I think, uh, I think Ray is a more complex character than you're giving her credit for, especially after last Jedi. Oh, no question about it. Yeah. But it, what's interesting is that a lot of people, and it's because okay, so it's because of the strength being conflated with power mm-hmm. that so many people get frustrated, and then you get this term Mary Sue that comes in, which is like a person. It doesn't necessarily have to be a female, but like a person who comes in and is just naturally good at yeah. everything. And people saw Ray as that. People who are like way into Star Wars and are like, that's not how the Force works. It's like. Or it is now. How about yeah. that? You know, like and that's that's you and I being movie people before Star Wars people. But yeah, exactly. Um, and that's the thing is like when I think of so people talk about like strong female characters and 
and just like, and they're getting to a point now, I think where their studios are getting to a point now where they realize that, Oh no, strong doesn't net. Hopefully strong doesn't have to mean physical strength or even mental strength. It means depth. Yes. And it means a character that you can relate to in some way, shape or form. And so having sort of that central, one could say even a tragic flaw, I think is what makes any character, male, female, like it doesn't, whether it be like a big blockbuster or or a kitchen sink drama, it's what makes us relate to them. And so the films that I tend to respond to the most are the ones that have characters with that kind of flaw. And yet, and the film probably judges the flaw, but has such an intense love for the character Mm -hmm. That it's almost as though I love this character too much to sugarcoat them. Yeah. Um, can you re- I, can you ever forgive me? Is a, I think a great example that's of this. A, that is a wonderful example. I think uh, similarly. Um, I think you can count on me mm-hmm. and just the work of Kenneth Lonergan in general. I think he is a guy who writes wonderful characters who often have multiple flaws, and yet nonetheless he just sees them. I mean, it's it's the line in Wrinkle of Time that that made me made me cry in the moment, which is like saying like such beautiful flaws mm-hmm. and it's like of course these are not good and but when it comes right down to it with the with a couple of exceptions here and there it's like this flaw is probably tripping this person up more than anybody else mm-hmm. you know now sometimes the flaw can like hurt other people but at the same yeah. time it's like or other headphones or headphones yeah. you know um and it's that kind of thing that like there's a there's a sadness there more than a judgment when talking about from a director's point when they're talking, when they're showing characters that are, that are flawed. Like it's one of the things that I, one of the many things that I dislike about vice, like it, it would have been possible to see Dick Cheney as like, what is his flaw? And can I mourn that? And that, and, and what can we do about it? That's, mm. I think that's the difference between that and say Oliver Stone and that kind of thing. So I don't know why I got off on this. It was just something I was thinking. You wanted about to know about on, my anger. Yeah. Uh, even though, I know about your anger. 